Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. An interesting story we did this week is the booming business of everyday ballistic gear. After so many recent mass shootings, companies are selling bulletproof backpacks, clipboards, and more. The key demographic for these products is parents with kids playing on that fear angle. But how effective are these products in protecting your kids from gunfire? For more on this, we spoke to Abba Batarai, national retail reporter for The Washington Post. Like you said, taps into this growing sense of fear and helplessness that we have in this country, particularly among parents who are increasingly nervous about putting their kids on a school bus and sending them to school. Um, so, so these bulletproof backpacks, which have quietly been percolating for a few years, are really gaining ground this year. Um, sales rise after every mass shooting, unfortunately, and this is the first year that major retailers like Office Depot and Office Max are actually selling them in stores for the back-to-school season. Yeah, I mean, it's not even uh, backpack, uh, just backpacks. There's uh, bulletproof whiteboards, chair cushions, uh, just regular vests for, for kids. It, it's really kind of carrying into everything because you never know when something like this is going to happen. It's so unpredictable. Um, so the big question, though, uh, it's a big booming business. A lot of people are buying them, but do they actually work? You know, the experts that I spoke with said that there is little, if any, evidence that these products actually work. It's a very new industry, like you said, and so there just has not been a lot of testing done. These products aren't vetted by the government like ballistic gear for law enforcement officers might be. So you're really just kind of going on what the manufacturers are telling you. And even if they are effective, a lot of the academics that I spoke to raised the question of, well, what are the chances that a child is going to have the backpack on them at the very second that a shooter charges into their classroom? And even if they do... Um, how are they going to know exactly where the shooting is coming from and like be able to anticipate the bullet's trajectory in such right. a way that they position the backpack in front of their bodies and, you know, like everything has to work out perfectly in that split second. These are very tense situations and they just thought that the likelihood of that was very slim. A lot of the products, they're advertised as meeting a ballistic level 3A standard. Uh, what does that mean? The ballistic level 3A standard means that they can withstand bullets from handguns and revolvers, but what that doesn't protect against is military-style assault rifles, which is what we're increasingly seeing, unfortunately, in right. mass shootings. So these are useless in the face of those, those types of weapons. You spoke to a number of parents saying, I just want to do anything I can, and this gives me a little more peace of mind. Exactly. Every parent that I've spoken to has said is, you know, I understand that this isn't a miracle. It's not going to necessarily protect my child, but I want to know that I'm doing everything that I can. And this is a very tangible way for them to feel good about sending their kid to school with a bulletproof backpack. Describe to us how some of these backpacks look, uh, or that a lot of them are just inserts. It's not ne just necessarily a backpack. Uh, they're inserts that you could buy and put into any other backpack. What do these look like? Um, so a lot of these backpacks look just like backpacks. I mean, if it wasn't for the company logo, you know, that said guard dog security or whatever the company name might be, you would have no idea that this is a bulletproof backpack. And the inserts take that a step further. They're just sort of this cardboard, not cardboard, but <laughs> this rectangular insert that you stick inside your backpack and you can move it around from backpack to backpack as your child outgrows it. Um, and they're just meant to be a bulletproof shield. You did speak to a parent who bought one of these inserts for their kid. They were going to have their grandma sew it into the, you know, regular Jansport type backpack. But 
then came the hard part. They had to explain to them how to use the backpack, what to do in a situation. So this was a woman who had a six-year-old child who was starting first grade this year, and she she and her partner had been deciding for a long time whether they wanted to get one of these bulletproof backpacks or an insert. It had been months and months, and then after the shootings happened in El Paso, they decided, you know what, it's time. So they bought this insert, and then they had to sort of sit their kid down and sort of explain what this was and why he might need to use it, you know, that he would need to position it in front of his body if a gunman came to school. So these are really difficult conversations that parents are having to have, and a lot of the parents I spoke to honestly were on the fence. They kind of wanted to buy one of these, but their big sort of question mark was, how am I going to have this conversation with my elementary school student? Do I really want them to have this fear like so at the front of their minds? Abba Batarai, national retail reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. One of the fun stories we did was baby monitors. The latest baby monitors promise a bevy of new ways to watch your child while they sleep but sometimes they can add a little more fear and anxiety. Some parents are catching ghostly images next to their babies at night and are struggling to explain them. One motion-detecting baby monitor caught a human-like figure floating around the crib. For more on this, we spoke to Julie Jargon. She's a family and tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal. So I talked to one mom in Los Angeles and she was away from home. And when she came back one day, she found her husband sitting at the kitchen table and looking a little bit worried. And he showed her a screenshot he had taken of their cocoon cam. And it showed what looked like a human-like figure from the baby monitor. It was kind of floating above the ground, looking over the baby who was sleeping upstairs at the time that he took the photo. And there were other images they found. One that was like two figures looking over the baby. There was another one of looked like a whole family of kind of ghostly shapes. And it was always looking over the baby as the baby right. was sleeping in its bassinet. The thing with this picture, though, is that these are motion cameras and there's colors associated with that. So it looks like a person and it's supposed to be associated with movement. What the camera showed, it just said motion detected. And then, you know, you could see where that motion was by looking at the at the colors. Now, this mom shared with me some other photos that they'd taken of, of the baby monitor when someone was in the room and when motion was detected from a, you know, real human being. And she'd shown me a photo of her husband rocking the baby, one of the baby that, you know, when the baby was kind of awake or, you know, moving in the bassinet. And what those look like were just kind of, you know, you could see the the human being, you know, and then you could see some colors sort of around the person, not in the shape of a person, but just kind of in the general area where the person was moving around. But it was it didn't take on a sort of human-like form like you see in the photos wow, interesting. that she shared. So the big question, obviously, are the ghosts real or are people just jumping to conclusions? You reached out to Cocoon Cam. They blamed it on a bad installation. They said that this appeared that the Cocoon Cam was placed on a dresser rather than mounted on the wall above the crib. And they said that what the computer vision system tries to do is find a you know, location of movement to focus on and that what was likely the scenario in this case was curtains billowing or lights or shadows that it detected as movement and then created these colorful forms. But, but you know, in this room, and you can see it in the photo, there there were no curtains or wooden blinds. What is it? I don't know. I mean, we didn't really get a very good explanation from the manufacturer. So I don't know. I don't know what those images were. And then the flip side of this, and this is why I love your articles, because, you know, it's the only next logical thing to do. You contacted a paranormal investigator and they said, <laughs> yes. it definitely looks like we have some ghostly activity here. 
<laughs> yes. And you'd expect a paranormal investigator to say something like that. But I mean, he actually gave me some helpful tips on, you know, when you see something like this, it's unexplained. There are, there are ways to try to test it out because depending on the positioning of one camera, you could see things that might appear one way in one camera. And so the best way to determine if something like this is actually a supernatural type of image is to set up multiple cameras at different angles focused in on wherever the object is. That way, if you're seeing the same thing from multiple objects, you can maybe jump to the conclusion that it is something unexplained. But if it is some effect of light, shadow, what have you, you know, you might not see it at all from a different angle. And another case that you mentioned in your story was uh, a Nest Cam alerted parents to motion in the baby's room and then they saw a closet door slowly open. So, okay. So after all of this, now speaking to parents, even seeing uh, reactions to the story online, maybe what do people think about, about it? Uh, and the two parents that you spoke to specifically for the story, did they think anything spooky was happening? On The parents I spoke to for the story definitely were worried that something spooky was happening and, and they'd each had some other experiences too, that I didn't have room to detail um, in the column. But, you know, a lot of the readers were very skeptical and thought there must be other logical explanations, especially about the closet door opening. You could certainly assume that there are other logical explanations for that. Maybe the closet door wasn't fully latched. You know, maybe the floors are uneven and it just, you know, like wasn't well built. And <laughs> right. <laughs> I, you know, who knows? But I love um, it. I'm going to say they were ghosts. But the thing <laughs> the thing is, with a lot of these latest and, and newest baby monitors, that they're, they're causing a lot of anxiety for parents with a lot of false alarms and things like that. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is, and the point of, of this, other than it just being kind of a fun a fun read, is the downside of some technology is that it isn't always accurate in terms of what it's representing, and it sometimes has the opposite effect than what's intended. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. My favorite story of the week. Cannabis restaurants are coming to California. And if things go well enough, this could be a model you can start seeing in other states. The soon-to-be-opened Lowell Farms Cannabis Cafe is going to be pairing farm-to-table meals with flower service, so you can pair that meal with the perfect joint. Even though California has legalized recreational marijuana, running a cannabis restaurant is nothing like running a typical restaurant. For more on this, we spoke to Maura Judkis. She's a reporter at the Washington Post for all the creative ways that this is all going to work out. This is pretty groundbreaking in terms of what people are doing with cannabis. There have been a number of pop-up restaurants. There are some consumption lounges that are attached to dispensaries. But um, when Lowell Farms opens its cafe in West Hollywood, it will be the first full-service, open-to-the-public restaurant that serves a full meal plus cannabis. And they're going to be opening in early September. And, you know, they've had to jump through a lot of logistical hurdles to get this off the ground. It's called Lowell Farms Cannabis Cafe. The main partner in this is Lowell Herb Company, which has a bunch of celebrity backers, uh, Miley Cyrus, Chris Rock, Mark Ronson, Sarah Silverman, a lot of big names and a, a lot of money behind these ventures. I mean, one of the interesting things was that because of all the licensing and all, all the things that you need, it's going to be about $3 million for this restaurant to open. 
Yeah, it takes a lot of money to open one of these because there's a lot of lobbying. There were the license proposals, which were quite expensive. And there's a lot more expenses than running a typical restaurant. I think that's one thing people don't understand about these is that you have to have extra staff. You have to have 24-hour security. If it's a smoking lounge, you need these like very expensive vents to suck up the smoke and purify the air. There's just a lot that goes into it. And so that's why a big company like Lowell is well-positioned to do it. But there are also a number of small entrepreneurs um, and smaller businesses that are working towards operating one of these restaurants as well. Tell us, kind of describe how this cannabis cafe slash restaurant, everything, how it's going to work. You're going to be able to sit down, order a dish, and then somebody will bring you a joint that pairs with that dish. Yes, exactly. Basically, um, there will be two outdoor areas and one indoor area in the Lowell Cafe. Um, There's one area for people who aren't going to consume cannabis at all. um, If someone just wants to come in for a coffee or a snack. Um, And then there are two areas where you'll be able to smoke or vape. There will also be a limited number of edibles that they'll have. And actually, there will be two different sets of waiters um, or servers. You'll have one person who will be serving you your food and then another person who will be serving you your cannabis and they will be a little bit more highly trained. They'll be able to offer you really specific um, recommendations based on what you want to feel and and what your level of experience and tolerance is. And that's by design, actually. It's part of the regulations that they've had to go through. Um, You need separate staff for both areas of the restaurant. This is going to be done in West Hollywood, California. And even the West Hollywood City Council has been very involved in all this and kind of suggesting and and approving how to work with the regulations. Uh, uh, Basically, as you mentioned, you know, there's going to be a separate waiter, separate bills even for food and for cannabis. And that's part of it. You're basically housing two businesses under one roof. Exactly. Yeah. And the reason for that is that there is this big discrepancy between the state law and the West Hollywood local laws. And so um, West Hollywood created, they, they passed this ordinance and they essentially created this type of license where people would be able to serve cannabis and food together and eventually infuse the food. But that's actually not legal at the state level yet. And there is no cannabis cafe license at the state level. And the state actually doesn't permit people to serve food and cannabis together. And so the reason they've had to come up with all these loopholes is so that they're able to operate this business and still stay within the state law. And the way, the way that they're doing that is essentially co-locating the two businesses under one roof. And so when you go to the Lowell Cafe, you're essentially going to a dispensary because that is what the state has licensed it as. And they will have more limited rules than other dispensaries in West Hollywood. You won't actually be able to take things out of the area. You'll have to consume them on site. And when you order food, you'll essentially be ordering delivery from the place next door, which is actually under the same roof. There's another restaurant that could be on its way soon. It's called Antidote. And they have another creative loophole for actually being able to infuse the uh, marijuana, the cannabis into food. Because one of the problems is with food is that that stuff has to be prepackaged and tested before for quality assurance and whatnot. So for a kitchen to infuse fresh food right there in a kitchen, it's impossible to do. You can't have a regulator standing by 24-7 there. So tell us what the plan that Antidote would be using, what their loophole would be. 
Yeah, Antidote has a really clever plan. Um, what they are going to do when they open, and I think they're a little further off, they're planning for the spring of 2020, but they are planning to open a commissary kitchen that produces THC-infused sauces or dressings or oils or butters, like things, you know, chocolate for a dessert. And what you would do is, again, have those two co-located businesses under one roof, a cannabis business and the restaurant business. And from the cannabis business for Antidote, you would buy your butter or your oil or your sauce to go with your meal that you're ordering from the restaurant. And it would be prepackaged and tested already because they've made it and those things have a longer shelf life. And so it's kind of a way of infusing your food without actually infusing it on site. And by law, people have to open the package themselves. So you would order essentially a small bottle of salad dressing or a pat of butter and put it on the food yourself. What about some of the main concerns? Because in the way that cannabis affects people differently, their tolerances, dosage levels, everybody's a little different, especially when it comes to edibles. Are there concerns with this? Are there plans to tackle any of that? So the businesses are really aware of that. And I mean, it's, it's obviously in their best interest that guests don't overconsume, not just because it could get the restaurant in trouble, but also because they really want people to have a good experience and they want them to be regulars and come back often. And if someone gets too high and has like a really, really bad night, they're, they're going to be less inclined to come back. So it's in their best interest to make sure that people don't have too much. So those bud tenders, the people who are going to be helping people choose their cannabis, will kind of recommend a dose if people aren't very experienced or haven't had cannabis in a long time, they'll want you to start with a lower dose and then maybe amp it up if you aren't feeling anything. But they also know that edibles take a while to kick in. So they affect everyone differently. And I think that for people who are coming to these cafes for the first time and maybe are less experienced cannabis consumers, they're going to urge you to really consume it in moderation. And then as you continue to have experiences, then you can experiment with different things. But they really don't want people to be driving home if they are under the influence they're going to help you get an Uber or a Lyft. They have security on site in case someone goes a little bit overboard and they have ways of kind of helping people calm down. What have they said about as far as turning tables over? Because if someone's in there getting high, they're relaxed, they might linger a lot longer. It might be harder to turn over tables. There's also this other thing of it's kind of like a, if you open a, a, a bottle of beer, or a bottle of wine in a restaurant, you can't really take the leftover with you. So if you uh, get extra flour or something like that, that all has to stay there. So that's also kind of another uh, concern, maybe something that needs to be worked on. Yeah, yeah. That's something that um, I think from the city council, they're still kind of figuring out a solution to the problem of leftovers because some of the business owners here, they're worried that if someone buys something that's a little bit more formidable, like a like a whole chocolate bar or something that's really not a single serving thing, that you know, if they can't take their leftovers home, they're going to feel kind of cheated. Either that or they'll take the entire edible and maybe go a little bit overboard. So that's something that they're still kind of working out between the businesses and the city. But there are a lot of other ways, too, that it's really not the same. Um, you know, they have to choose their locations very carefully because they can't be located within 600 feet of a school. Um, the banking is really, really tough for cannabis businesses because traditional federally regulated banks can't really do business with them. And so a lot of this is like cash transactions or they use alternative banks. And I think because of a lot of these issues, too, a lot of these businesses think that they're not really going to make a lot of money in the first year because they 
expenses are so great to operate one of these things. The tables won't turn as quickly because people probably will tend to linger. And they're kind of viewing it more as an investment in the future and an investment in normalizing cannabis and kind of making these sort of experiences a regular thing that people can just make a part of their social life. Maura Judkis, reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. 